We are in a series about spiritual discipline, and it's called Practice. And if you're a guest, I want to welcome you into that conversation. If you've been here for a while, you know, we've been looking at some things that uh, are just counter to the way that we live today. And I wanted to begin by quoting a prophet. Haggai said it like this, Is it a time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, the Lord of Armies says this, Think carefully about your ways, or put it on your heart. You've planted much, but have harvested little. You eat, but never have enough to be satisfied. You drink, but never have enough to be happy. You put on clothes, but never have enough to get warm. The wage earner puts his wages into a bag with a hole in it. The Lord of Armies says this, Think carefully about your ways. Go up to the hills and bring down lumber. Build the house, and I will be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You expected much, but then it amounted to little. When you brought your harvest to your house, I ruined it. Why? This is the declaration of the Lord of Armies. Because my house still lies in ruins, while each of you is busy with his own house. What Haggai is pointing at here is this. Um, it's twofold. One, it's about priority. He is talking about a rebuild of the temple, which would have been for the Lord, and that was important. But it was only so that God would get our attention and, and bring us to a place today where we would recognize Him as priority over the things that keep us otherwise busy. Today we're talking about slowing down, and several weeks ago I began this series by saying, Jesus is many things, but one thing He is not was hurried. Okay? And the question I have is if Jesus was never hurried, why is his church so frantic? Moving at a frenetic pace, just letting the tail wag the dog a bit. Shouldn't we have cause for concern if the church of Jesus looks nothing like its Savior? And this is one thing that I've been trying to uh, place my mind upon. I'm not a slow-paced person. I'm a fast-paced person. I want you to know in advance, my confession is that I'm far more a learner in this than I am a teacher. But this morning, several people heard me uh, say that a few weeks ago, and they asked, they said, okay, yes, yes, I, I get it that we're hurried, we're frantic, and we need rest, and I want to accept the invitation to Sabbath, but how do we do that? How do I do that today? And my answer is simple. It's deliberate. We have to deliberately make a change. We have to intentionally put our heel in the sand, turn, and go in a different direction. If we're not willing to change course and allow ourselves to be led by Jesus and continue to allow ourselves to be just frantically led by the culture wherever it will take us, it, you remember Scripture said that's like a, a wave that's tossed and blown by the wind. If, if we don't have an intention to abandon our present course and intentionally change to follow His ways, then I have a better question for us. And I think it's the better question to consider. Aren't we marginalizing Jesus in our lives with our chronic busyness? Let's just, let's just make sure that we're all having conversation with the same room. Are we busy, hands raised? Are we not marginalizing Jesus as His church with our chronic busyness. And can I ask this question too? When did busy become a moniker for important? You know what I'm talking about? How many of you say, oh man, I'd love, I'm just so busy? As if 
we, when we say that statement, we want others to be admonishing how, how in need we are or how important we are, right? I'm just so busy. If we were honest, it would probably be a cover-up for how lazy we are, but this is church. We don't talk about that kind of stuff. You know what I'm saying? When did this become a moniker for importance, our busyness? Jesus said it like this in Luke 10, verse 38. While they were traveling, he entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary who also sat at the Lord's feet and was listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks, and she came up and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? So tell her to give me a hand. The Lord answered her and said, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but one thing is necessary, and Mary has made the right choice. It will not be taken away from her. This is our first point today. It's the very title of our message. We have to slow down. We've got to slow down and we've got to become a people that have a tendency to exercise our right to slow down. We don't have to move at a frenetic pace, one where we look hurried and frantic and uncontrolled. We, we can, we get to slow down. You see, because Martha wasn't doing anything innately wrong. She was doing a good thing because she'd been taught by the law to be a good hostess. And when you have someone as important as Jesus, a Pharisee, like a religious teacher, a leader, shows up at your house, a dignitary, you're going to do all that you can to make them feel at home. You're going to honor them. And so when she asked, she's saying, look, I'm doing what I know to do. And Jesus, in the New King James Version, it says it like this, and I love it. He says, Look, Martha, you're worried about many things, and you're frantic. But, but Mary's chosen the better thing. Like here it says, right here, it's what's necessary. But she's chosen the better thing. So let me, let me, try, to, um, let me try to explain a little bit further what Jesus is saying by going to the verses just before we see this picture. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. And And in it, Jesus is challenged by a religious leader, by someone who uh, was very astute, an expert in the law, the Scripture says. And he asks Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus turns and says, what's the law say? What have you studied? He says, well, the greatest commandment and the second. And the second was just as important as the first. That was love your neighbor, care for him. He said, you've answered correctly, so let me... Let me give you a story. In verse 30 of Luke 10, he says, Jesus took up a question and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, fled, leaving him for half dead. A priest happened to be going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at a place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, on his journey, came up to him. When he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him into the inn, took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, 
take care of him, and when I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. Whatever this two denarii doesn't cover for him, I'll come back and give you whatever you had to put out to care for this guy. And then Jesus turns and asks the religious leader a question. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And I love this response. You need to understand the response. In context, a Samaritan would be like um, a known terrorist to us. Like they hated these people. Like these were the, when you think of scourge of society, think lower. That's who the Samaritan would be given the context of who he's speaking with. He can't even say the Samaritan. He can't even say that out loud. He says, well, the one who showed mercy to him. He can't, he hates the thought of a Samaritan so much. He can't even voice that out loud. So he says, the one who showed mercy and Jesus turns and says, go and do the same. Go and do the same. So here's, you have Jesus gives a picture of what it means to slow down and take time and attention. The priest who was the one to intercede for the people, oversee the sacrifices, connect the people to the heart of God, passes by on the other side of the street acting as if he didn't even see the man who's been led, left to die at the hands of robbers. And then a Levite, the only tribe not counted amongst the 12 tribes of Israel, a Levite, one where we select the high priest from to intercede for the people, does the same. The religiously elite, remember the, the Levite was the only one who could carry an usher in the presence of God by the poles on the right hand when, when we moved the ark. It was reserved for the Levite. Two very important people, esteemed people in their culture, But yet it is the Al-Qaeda terrorist in their functional minds who stops, has compassion, comes alongside, tends to, cares for, places him on his own horse, takes him into an end, not only cares for his bill and makes sure he has food in his stomach, says, if it exceeds what I've given you, I will pay the extra. There will be nothing out to you. I will take care of it. This is what Jesus means by slowing down and paying attention. Jesus says it is, and and he he gives this away in in such a way that the religious elite who asked the question and did so to ensnare him cannot deny the moral and still can't even bring himself to say the one that Jesus is admonishing here. So... We have to be willing to slow down, pay attention, tend to those and care for those and invest in those that God has entrusted to us. Eugene Peterson calls it living by the rhythm of grace. But see, we need to recognize a little bit what we're up against. How many of you uh, love to live by the sway of the clock? Uh, Let me say that a little bit clearer. Uh, how many of you have ever been to another culture where they, they don't live as strategically tied to a clock? They may say, we're going to have an event at like 2 o'clock. That means they could show up two hours before or two hours after, and that drives you crazy. Hands up. Okay. So let, let's, just, let's just imagine this for a moment. 
It was during the 6th century that St. Benedict developed um, a concept called fixed-hour prayer. And while he was developing fixed-hour prayer for the monks, seven times a day they would turn and they would pray, and, and, and that's what they would do. But in order to get to a place where they could have fixed hour, they needed to develop a timepiece that would help them to know to pray at the hour on the hour. So the clock was developed. So St. Benedict developed the clock in the church for the church. In fact, we didn't see the first public clock outside of a monastery, outside of the church, till the late 1300s in Germany. And, and this was a marking principle, this, this point where, the, where it, the clock shows up publicly forever changed our relationship in the industrial world to time. Because I need you to recognize that time became in that moment far more man-made. It became far more efficient but think about it. Up until this point, the thing that they would have used to set their clock would have been more the turn of the axis. Like, up until this point, time to them was far more real, more seasonal. It was, there was a time for harvest. There was longer days in the summer. There was shorter days in the winter, longer nights. There were, you know, a time for Sabbath. That's the way that people connected to the thing that we spin on. It was far more real. But after this, it almost seemingly became a little more artificial because people began to connect themselves to the term like nine to five. And so we find ourselves far more efficient, but yes, a little, a little less human, maybe a little bit more robotic. It was during the uh, late 1800s that... Thomas Edison developed the light bulb. Prior to this point, did you know that we, we in North America slept an average of 11 hours a night? Did you know that? Today, we average seven hours of sleep a night. So you can see a dramatic shift. And how many of you have ever felt guilty for sleeping seven and a half or eight hours when you get up? You get up and you kind of sheepishly go get your coffee and pass your spouse because they were the one up with the kids, been there. 11 hours a night was the average. We are now down to seven. And again, far more efficient. Please let me, let me be clear. Like, I love technology. I'm not anti-technology. I didn't walk here. I didn't ride in on a horse. You know, I'm grateful for that. I'm, I'm grateful for things like electricity and HVAC and indoor plumbing. These are all things that are excellent in my world. But I think we also have to recognize our relationship to them. We have to recognize that at 2007, we saw the explosion of the digital age, and we even saw ourselves become even more artificial, maybe even a less real. Why? Because that was the year that Facebook went public and started trading publicly. And guess what? You assumed a lot of friends that we don't even call real friends. We call them Facebook friends, right? How many of you recognize you have way less real friends in life than you do Facebook friends? So the, thus the explosion of social media with the intention to better connect us to the rest of the world, but seemingly, seemingly disconnecting us from those that are right in front of us. 
And so that brings me to our second point. We have to be present. We're missing out on the details of our lives in our hurriedness. See, in the story of Mary and Martha, Mary had chosen the better thing. She was studying Jesus. She desired to drink him in, become familiar with all of his ways. In order for us to, in order for us to take in the details of life, we as a people have to be able to slow down and celebrate a little bit the idiosyncrasies of people around us. How many of you do notice the faults and flaws in others? This, this means yes. Okay? How many of you have been known to point them out in others? Okay? What if, what if we were to become more like Jesus and we just embrace them and, uh, and we actually learn to love people based on those idiosyncrasies? I had a friend who was a very uh, sharp pastor. He was older. His, his wife had passed on. He'd been widowed. And, uh, and he was... He was just going through life after the fact, and I asked him one day, years after she had passed, I said, how, how are you? Do you miss her? He goes, I miss her every day. And I said, what do you miss about her? He goes, not all the things that you think. And I said, okay, what do you mean? He goes, well, she was an amazing person. He tells all those things, and the world knew that. I said, what do you miss the most? He goes, I miss, I miss the fact that she was really gassy. I said, what? I missed the fact that she would like, she would pass gas in the middle of the night and wake herself up because it was so loud. And I didn't have the ability to tell her that it wasn't her. So I would just say, yeah, it was me. It was me. And I, 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 because here's the reality. That was the side of her that I saw. That was mine. That's what I miss. No one else saw that. No one else gets to see that in her. But I had to be present with her to know that. I had to listen. I had to embrace the moments that I had with her that were just mine. And that's what Jesus is talking about here as he points to the fact and in admonishing Mary versus simultaneously rebuking Martha. Martha wasn't doing anything bad, but he was saying, you're missing the moment. What if Jesus in healing people, like he goes to the blind or he goes to the deaf and he kind of does it half-heartedly? What if he kind of looks at like, this, this deaf person, he's like, eh. he got, got his hand, and then he gets distracted by Peter and the other disciples who are kind of goofing off, like, which I expect happened a lot. And he was like, eh, whatever, you know, like here, you know. And all of a sudden, this person's like taking in sound for the first time. And Jesus kind of just like, you know, whatever, and like walks away. I think that's probably pretty fair for him to have that kind of reaction when the people that he gave hearing to, sight to, opened their vocal cords, would turn in just a short amount of time and scream, crucify him. I think that he had fair, and even if he was a little half-hearted, that would be okay for Jesus to do that because they were just going to turn and use it against him anyways. But Jesus didn't do that. We don't read of him doing that. We read of him looking deep into their eyes and healing them and their lives forever changing. Do people look into your eyes and forever change because they actually got eye contact from you, his church? Do they change because they spent time with us and we're not in a hurry just moving to the very next thing and rushing on? 
Are we, like Martha in verse 40 and 41, distracted by our many tasks, so hurried that we cannot be present with those that are around us listening, troubled over many, many things? And we use the moniker to get out of those moments. We say, I'm just too busy. Too busy to be Jesus? Too busy to represent and give hope to the world? We are... It says that in North America, we have developed relationships, and I'm of, of one, that have developed relationships with our phones that are compulsory, obsessed. Obsession is defined in this way, an idea or thought that continually preoccupies or intrades, intrudes on a person's mind. How many of you right now have even felt your phone buzz in your pocket and you feel the need to check it? It's like a compulsory response. It's an impulse driven by obsession. What if, just humor me, what if we were just as obsessed with spending time with Jesus? What if we were just as obsessed, even more so by spending time in his word than we were to check our phones? What if we had things hit our lives and we weren't sure how to respond and we go, I've got to check the Bible. I need to know what his instruction says about it versus jumping on Google or seeing what my friend sent me in a text or how many people liked my post on Instagram. What if I was less driven by the posts I put up and how many people liked it and I was just driven by the smile of Jesus and his instruction and in how to navigate life and be a person that has a little bit of gravitas because when I'm with people, I'm present and I'm slow enough to drink them in. And when I'm with them, I, I don't just simply blow them off because I'm moving to the next thing and I'm not trying to communicate a moniker of importance because I say I'm busy. I am in love with Jesus enough to be present with the people he died for. Because lastly, culture, and maybe, maybe even the church will disagree with this. And I only say that maybe the church disagrees because I think we're all conditioned to present a facade. I believe we're all conditioned to gain immediate gratification, whether it be our tendencies on social media or the way we drive through our fast food joints. We are just not conditioned to go slow. Culture is continually pushing us at a faster pace, and we have allowed them to. We move at such a frantic and frenetic pace that how many of you would be honest? This is just a question. How many of you have ever felt, maybe not today, so by admitting that you've grown up a little bit, this is okay. How many of you have ever felt like, I'm just trying to figure it out. I'm just surviving every day, making it, just making it. I'm just barely making it, okay? What if you were asked to live life with a little more intention? Culture is never going to give you that. We have to be a people that go, Jesus knows my purpose and my point. And the only way that I know why I sit on this big globe and spin is found in him. It's in the places of secrecy with him. It's in the places of the quiet where he speaks to me. And, and like Martha, maybe, maybe you've been doing a lot of great things. Maybe you've been doing a lot of good things. But if we're honest, how many of us recognize that as the church, maybe we've just done a lot of arbitrary things? And we're really not even sure as to why. 
See, there are two kind of action words in the world. There's doing and there's being. And when Jesus showed up in a burning bush to speak to Moses in Exodus 3, he looked at him and said, well, who do I tell Pharaoh has sent me? Jesus turns, the Lord turns and says, you tell them that I am has sent you. I am that I am. And when we think about the word am, that's really just a proper way in the English to say the word be. Because when we speak in Ebonics, we would say, I'd be going to the store. I'd be going to the mall. But in proper English, we'd say, I am going. And when you think about what Jesus said of himself, I am, I was, and I will be. We connect more with the Father and the one who has graven us in his image when we are being and out of our being we are doing. We start to recognize who we are versus what we do. And when did, when did what you do or what you have def- be the definitive point of who you are? When did we believe or buy into the lie that what I have and what I do defines who I am? That's not true. There are people in here who struggle with feeling at fault all the time. There are people here who struggle with not feeling good enough. And we don't like to put our minds on that. There are people here who feel like they're going to be there for everyone, but in the end, no one will be there for them. There are people who are so terrified in this room of being forgotten that they let the culture move them at a frenetic pace just so they can show up and say hi to everyone. In fact, when they're sitting alone and they're terrified about that, they're like, oh, I'm alone. They text 50 people, just say hi. This is not Mary. This is Martha. And we need to start being a little bit more like Mary and stop doing so much like Martha. We need to be slow. You need to be slow. Choose to match your pace of life to his. Jesus was never hurried. He was many things. But one thing we could never say of Jesus was he was hurried. He had one of his closest friends on the planet die. He shows up two days later. His best friends are in the middle of a hurricane. Last week we looked at this. And he stays on the mountain to pray for six more hours. We need to be present. We need to start giving value to those who we're with and and actually listen to them. How many of you have ever had this happen and it absolutely offended you? You're talking to someone, you're bearing your soul, they look at you and they do this. Their eyes immediately move away to either their phone or the person who just walked in behind you and they glance at them over your shoulder, seemingly communicating unintentional, but whatever or whoever just walked in was far more important than you were in that moment. And you internally shut down because you caught it. Anyone? Lastly, we need to be like Jesus. Graven in his image and not graven in our cultures. To become like Jesus, we need time with Jesus. And this is our time. This is our time right here. We're going to respond. And the band is going to sing and lead over us. I'm going to ask our prayer partners to get in position. I'm going to ask Scott and Eric to come here to the front. Here's what I want to say to you. If you're here 
and you're a guest or you're here and you've been coming for a while but you don't have time with Jesus because you don't have a relationship with Jesus, I want you to talk to one of these people about that. This was the most important decision, life-defining decision that I made at one point in my life. And I have been imperfect, wildly imperfect, but I've been at peace ever since. But if you are here and you're part of this church as much as I am, I, I'm going to admit I need Jesus. And this morning, there's no place for me to be but at his table and going, God, you, you gave everything. You could have stopped it all, but you chose to take upon my sin and my brokenness and be humiliated by the very people that you healed, by the very people that you you gave life to. Some, in Lazarus' case, back to you. And so, God, far be it from me to be a person that when you speak to me, I do nothing with that. Far be it from me to be a person when you speak and you let me know that I'm too fast, I'm too frantic, I'm, I'm being driven by culture and I'm not being led by you to keep going in that direction, expect a different result. So I come to your table and I go, Jesus, thank you for giving your life so that I could have life. And I don't want to live my life wasted. I want to live as Christ who dies again. I'm coming to your table going, you broke your body, your blood was shed to cover my sins and I want to slow down and I want to be able to share that with other people I want to drink you in I want to know everything you have to say so that I can share it with others and I'm re-enlisting today at your table amen so I'm going to ask you to stand father whether it be we come to you because we need prayer and this altar is wide open maybe It is we need you for salvation and we have people here that we need to talk to. Or Father, maybe it's we need to re-enlist at your table because we have not been giving due honor with our lives to you for the sake of the world. And God, however you need your church to respond, me, however you need me to respond this morning, I will do so. In Jesus' name, amen.